Coming up next is this month's special series, Focus on Men's Health, on ReachMD XM157. You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Although his demeanor may not give it away, the adolescent male patient is interested in discussing his own health. An appointment with an adolescent male is an opportunity for the clinician to listen and communicate information that is crucial to the patient's health. How best to guide and counsel the adolescent male patient is the topic of this clinician's roundtable. Welcome, I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and joining me from Baltimore, Maryland, is my guest, Dr. Arik Marcel, Assistant Professor at the Johns Hopkins University's Department of Pediatrics and the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Marcel. Thank you for having me. Dr. Marcel, you have offered some very nice guidelines for clinicians working with adolescent males, most recently in contemporary pediatrics. You begin by reassuring the clinician that adolescent boys do care, and although they will let you get away with a quick and simple exam, it would be wrong not to address their health concerns as you would with any other patient. Why is it common for primary care providers to disregard the opportunity of meeting with an adolescent male? I think it's a great question, and there's multifold reasons. Partly in how our healthcare system is set up, visits are very short, and time is limited. Time, you know, time crunch type of situation where within an hour you're expected to see, you know, many patients. A couple of the other issues relate to the fact that if Young men are just not as frequent, you know, do not as frequent healthcare sites as often as, as women do. Some healthcare providers may just not be as comfortable addressing health issues of the young man. And then lastly, there are some young men who are quite silent and or not as responsive in when questioned around particular issues, and it just may be part of their personality and or embarrassment, um, discomfort, being in the health care setting. We know that adolescent boys don't make as frequent visits to the doctor as girls do, so they just may be apprehensive about what's going to happen and or appear less interested. But I think if time isn't a factor, most providers will see that building relationships help young men to open up, and you can truly have an effective interaction with them. What issues do adolescent males want to discuss with their primary care providers? I think just like girls, you know, they're interested in their physical health, growth and development. They're interested in issues related to sex and drugs. Part of our concerns are whether red flags can be determined around school or family interactions that lead into any of those issues, Um, mental health, that sullen young man may actually be really depressed. And if one doesn't assess for depression or other kinds of mental health issues, um, that might be completely missed as well. When looking at the comfort level of adolescents of different ages, in some cases, boys want to discuss issues even if it embarrasses them. This seems important for clinicians to know so that they will attempt conversation and provide information, even if they can see that it's uncomfortable for the patient. Partly that might be related to a provider's demeanor and how they ask questions and how they open up conversations with their young patients. And there are many different techniques to do that, opening it up to questions to the young patient that could be either written down before a visit happens or during the visit itself. But... I think one of the 
great techniques is to really be structured around how one interviews an adolescent patient and comfortable asking the types of questions around those types of structured interviews that deal with problems at home, issues in school, nutrition and and activity, areas related to drugs and sex, as well as mental health and abuse and other types of issues related to safety. So having standard ways of questioning the young person and letting them know that these are routine questions that are asked of all patients, but trying to also tap into the concerns as a patient may raise it or embarrassment if it comes up and just being open about it. Yeah, these are things that that some people are are embarrassed about and even I might be embarrassed about, but these are things that we could do to, um, that I might need to understand in order to um, address your health issues. You also referred to the clinician's appreciation that, or, or perhaps bias, that teenage males might be sullen or act depressed. And that's probably a really important thing for the clinician to be aware of their assumptions about teenage males in order that they don't overlook something serious, that all teenage boys are not sullen and not exhibiting healthy behavior when they show that. That's an important Point. And I think for the patients that present that are challenging to talk to, I think it's sometimes easy to just, you know, think, oh, well, they're just being a teenager and they're just not, you know, and the parent will say the same thing about their behavior at home. But I, I think not overlooking depression in those types of situations is, is a critical piece of that health visit that needs to happen. But it may not be the case for every single young man who comes into the clinic. Dr. Marcel, you mentioned that sometimes it's helpful to have kind of a list to go over with all patients so that you cover everything and that it helps the patient feel at ease that these are questions and topics that everyone needs to talk about. You've suggested these content areas in your publications. What general topics do you suggest that physicians cover? So just to provide a a brief background, if physicians aren't familiar with either the Guidelines for Adolescent Preventive Services published by the AMA or Bright Futures, which is recommendations put out by both the Maternal Child Health Bureau um, in collaboration with the American Academy of Pediatrics, I would recommend to find them and, and they're on the web and easily pulled down through PDFs or through direct contact with both of those organizations. And Bright Futures will be putting out new updates this year in the fall. And other techniques that have been developed in order to pull kind of the content that's described in both of those documents, um, one of them is is an acronym called HEADS um, that was um, described many years ago in in another um, contemporary pediatrics article that is an acronym standing for Home Education Activities, Drugs, Sex, Suicide, or Sadness. Um, as well as safety. That's a great teaching tool, especially if you're working with medical students or residents, to learn how to take a psychosocial history. um, And that can be supplemented with um, written materials before an office visit. It's typically recommended to be part of uh, the history taking uh, along with uh, regular medical um, history. And these are long lists, um, and and if you were to cover all of these things, then the visit with a young man should not be brief. This would make it very thorough. Yes, but I think once one becomes familiar with these types of questions and content areas, visits don't have to be, it doesn't have to make a visit extremely long. I think that the issue is 
understanding areas that one might need to tap into as part of a health physical. But I, I would say the majority of our visits with teenagers is talking as opposed to physical examination. You know, not to diminish the importance of the physical exam, but I think most of our history might address health issues we do pick up from history taking as opposed to the physical exam. And what advice can you give the practitioner for counseling special populations of males? If the clinician is more familiar with just personal histories and what the types of environments and or situations that young men are addressing, I think that goes a long way to understanding how to work with special populations of men. Again, as part of sexual history, I think a lot of us assume and take a heterosexual history. We may be a little bit heterosexist in in how we approach um, sex histories when we take them and and trying to take a step back and, and understanding that there are many different types of sex activities that males in their teenage years may be even exploring with. And try not to be judgmental around it, but understanding that different behaviors place young men at, um, at different risk. And asking questions around both orientation as well as sexual behavior in order to either help understand what a young man might be going through and help connect him to resources if you may be actually the first person he discloses that type of information to. I think that you mentioned the anxious male. I think stress is a, is a significant issue for a lot of young people that may not necessarily create physical health problems, but in the short term or in the immediate time that, that we're interacting with these young men in junior high or pre-junior high into high school, um, transitions from junior high to high school is a, is a really large um, stress time period for young men as well as um, issues around stress related to bullying and teasing in the school setting. I think young men in the culture that we live experience a lot of that every day, and some of them take it quite personally, and, and it can impact how they interact with the world around them and maybe even isolate them. So as physicians, recognizing that that might be happening, understanding um, how to question around that, and either help to address it one-on-one or refer them to counselors who can help them with that might be an important aspect of the type of care that we provide. So clinicians really need to be sensitive to so many of the things that young males could be facing. Sure. Thank you for listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Kathleen Margolin, and my guest has been Dr. Arik Marcel, Assistant Professor at the Johns Hopkins University's Department of Pediatrics and the Bloomberg School of Public Health. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Marcel. My pleasure. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, presents a special series, Focus on Men's Health. The FDA announces a change in its approach to pregnancy categories and drug labeling. And even a modest elevation of gestational glucose confers future diabetes risk. With this hour's medical news, I'm Dr. Mark Kina. And I'm Sue Berg. After years of use, the FDA has decided to do away with the five-letter category scheme it's used to make healthcare providers aware of the relative safety or risk of using drugs during pregnancy. Citing the vague nature of the old system and the fact that it's still not well understood, the agency will instead require more detailed sections on pregnancy and lactation in drug package inserts. 
Among the information that will be included is a summary of what is known about drug effects on the developing fetus and whether the information comes from human or animal studies. The lactation section will similarly undergo an updated format, including information about drug concentrations in breast milk and the effects that a drug's presence might have on the nursing infant. The journal Diabetes Care says that even maternal serum glucose below those that are diagnostic of gestational diabetes are associated with a higher risk of type 2 diabetes in future. Researchers analyzed data from over 31,000 pregnant women without gestational diabetes who took a one-hour oral glucose challenge test or a three-hour oral glucose tolerance test. Women with even one abnormal glucose tolerance test had double the risk of developing diabetes over the next nine years. The study's results come just after the New England Journal of Medicine published similar research showing that elevated maternal glucose levels that don't qualify as gestational diabetes are also associated with higher neonatal birth weight. With Sue Berg, this has been Dr. Mark Kina for ReachMD, XM157 Medical News.